in heaven. That is our prayer that your spirit would work in us even now to open our eyes, hearts, minds, souls to your very word. Father, we believe that it's a living word and works in us. So, Father, we pray that you would even now enable us to comprehend and be apprehended by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Turn, please, to First Peter in chapter 3. First Peter in chapter 3, I want to read verses 8 uh, through 12. First Peter in chapter 3. Hear the word of God. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to live life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Christianity is relational, that is, it is about relationships. It affects our relationships. We're in a variety of relationships. We're in relationship, in some sense, with God, just by very nature the fact that he is our creator, and we are the created ones, and thus we are related to him at least at that point, as creator and the ones created, we're, we're related to other human beings by the nature of our humanness. We share that in common. We share that together. So we're related uh, to each other. But the gospel, that is Christianity, affects all those relationships. Uh, we see it affecting our relationship with God, obviously, and, and Peter develops that in the first couple of chapters uh, in this epistle. We, we see, as I said, initially that we're related to God by way of his being our creator. But as our creator, that relates us as well to God being our judge, because he owns us, and he's the one who is to direct our lives, and he's the one who's to, to define us. And thus, to the degree that we don't adhere to his definition of us or don't follow his direction, then as our creator, as the one who owns us, he is also our judge. But we see that when the gospel comes into a person's life, then that relationship changes from creator, judge, to savior, father. Uh, we see that. Uh, Peter tells us that, that God has initiated this relationship with us. He writes to, in verse 1 of chapter 1, to those who are elect and those who have been chosen by God and, and sanctified uh, <clears throat> through the Holy Spirit that is set apart by the Holy Spirit for the purpose being obedience to Christ. And so you see the, the coming of this gospel into our lives, the coming of the truth of Christ into the life of a person changes that relationship with God. Because now, that means you're one who's been chosen by Him. <clears throat> you're one who's been set apart by the Holy Spirit. This one, and, and for the purpose of being obedient to Christ, and all that's confirmed by His blood. He says that by His mercy, 
We have been born again. That is, when the gospel comes, it, it brings new life by the Holy Spirit. It changes a person's whole disposition towards God. At first, you may have known that you were related to him simply by way of he, he being creator, you're being the created one, but now you see things have changed. The disposition of your heart has changed. He's no longer simply creator. He's no longer to be feared simply as judge, but now he's the one you realize who has saved you. He's the one who in Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins and accepted you as his very own. We realize then that things have so changed that God is at work to give us an eternal inheritance. And in fact, everything that happens in our life has great purpose because it it affects our faith. It, It purifies, it matures our faith, which is more precious even than gold. And we realize then that we're being built up into being a spiritual house together for the very dwelling place of God, and that he is our God, and that we are his people, that we now belong to him. And you see, the gospel changes that whole relationship that we have with God. But it also changes the relationship that we have with each other. Uh, Peter's been talking about how we're related to those even in civil authority, or those who are in authority over us in the workplace, or those who might be in authority in marriage. And it changes the way that we even exercise authority as he speaks to husbands. And now we come down into this particular section that I read, and we realize that it's going to affect who we are and how we relate to one another in the context of the church, and even how we relate to one another, uh, even as we relate to those who might be considered our enemies. Now, it shouldn't surprise us, really, that the gospel affects relationships because we have been created in the image of God. And God has existed throughout all of eternity. Pardon me, but I just appreciate how I can just so casually say that. I mean, just think about what I just said. God has existed through all eternity. Now, none of us understand that. That he's existed through all of eternity. Everything we know other than God has a beginning. Except for God. He's existed in all of eternity. And I know the question you want to ask is, yes, but when did that start? But you see, he existed in all of, throughout all of eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as our old dead friends have put it, that God in himself is a happy society. That is that God in himself is relational. He's related to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And in the context of the Trinity, there is a society, there is a community. And a community in which the primary relationship is love. And so you see, to be created in the image of God means that we're created to be a happy society. That's one of the reasons why when God looked at Adam, he said it's not good for him to be alone. He needs to be part of a happy society. He needs to be part of of, of a community of those like himself because he was created in the image of God, thus needed a community in which to share, in which to express that image. And so God in himself is a happy society. We're, we're, We're created in his own image. Therefore, we're created to be relational. We're created to be in relationship with others, in relationship with God, most certainly. To love him. That's an amazing point as well. 
the very fact that we join, we belong to, because of Christ, this heavenly, happy society. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And us, with Him. But also, with each other, in the context of this to-be-happy society. Now we realize that sin messes all that up. That sin messes up the relationship that we have with God, and sin messes up the relationship that we have with each other. It messes up the relationship that we have with God, because once sin enters, then God becomes a threat to us. He becomes a threat to us, because here stands God as the sovereign one, who decrees who we're to be. And sin says, I don't want to be who God wants me to be. I want to be me. You see, I don't want to be what he wants me to be. I want to be me. And, and he's the one, God stands there as the sovereign Lord to direct our lives. And we say, no, 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 no. I don't want God to direct my life. I want to direct my own life. I want to go where I want to go. I want to do what I want to go, do. I want to think what I want to think. I, I, I want to direct my own life. And so you see, God becomes a threat to us. And, and there stands the glorious God. And he says, I want you to live your life in worship of me. I want you to delight in me. And we say, no, 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 no. I want to delight in me. I want to be glorified. I want to be shown as being great. And you see, sin then results in God becoming a threat to us. And not only that, but it creates a hostility, what the Bible puts as an enmity between God and us. That is because then he is our judge and we've sinned against him. We've, we've committed high treason against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And thus we deserve death. And you see that sin disrupts that relationship between us and God. But of course it also disrupts and messes up the relationship that we have with each other. Because you see, if I want to be God, and you want to be God, we have a problem. That's why when I read 1 Corinthians 13, it's one of the most chilling passages in all of the scripture, because it speaks of love. Verse 4 says, love is patient. But you see, if I want to be God, then I find patience a very difficult thing, because why should I have to put up with you? I mean, really. If you do things that, that I don't want you to do, why can't I get upset with you? Why should I be patient? Why should I be indulgent with you? But you see, sin brings this self-centeredness that says everything should please me. And if you're not pleasing to me, why should I be patient with you? And so you see, it makes it impossible ultimately for, to me to really love you. That love is kind, but I don't mind having a disposition that hopes for your best interests, so long as your best interests don't conflict with mine. You see, if, if you get what I want, then we have a problem. Love doesn't envy. But if you have something that I want, then there's a problem. Love doesn't boast. But, but I really want you to see how great I am. It's not arrogant or rude, but it really is difficult not to be rude the way you are. Right? It doesn't insist on its own way, but, but, but what if you want to go a different way than I do? Then I have a problem. If I'm God and you want to be God, then it doesn't, um, it, it, it's not irritable or resentful. But self-centeredness is. You see, when sin enters, then I become very irritable because 
things don't go my way, I get very resentful because I get hurt. So you see, when sin enters in, it makes it impossible for me to really love God because he's a threat. And it makes it really impossible for me to love you. But the gospel comes to redeem all of that. Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's saying, okay, I'm writing to a group of Gentiles. You're out of it, essentially. You don't have a relationship with the people of God and you don't have a relationship with God because you're outside of all these covenants. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's saying, so because of the cross, you've been brought near, you've been brought in, you've been brought into the people of God, and you've been brought to God. Verse 14, for he himself, that is Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's a huge sentence. It's even only a part of a sentence. But, let me simply say this, that the purpose of the coming of Jesus is to unite individually us to God, collectively us to God, and to unite us to each other. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near, that is, both for the Jew and the Gentile. Verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So he's saying this. But the cross of Jesus, of course, broke the hostility between us and God. It broke his enmity toward us because this, our sins were paid for. And thus, if we could say it this way, it freed God to justify us because he could be just. Our sins were paid for. But not only that, it also revealed to us who God is, his holiness and his love for us, breaking our hearts, enabling us to see that love and to embrace him. But not only that, when I come to this one who is my father, I realize that in my family, that is related to me, those who also come to this one who is my father are a bunch of others, saved by that same grace. And so this great event, the cross, we're joined together with our father, and we're also joined together with each other. That's why we have this thing celebrated in our particular church once a month. We could do it more often than that called Communion, which is a celebration of our common union. And it's a union that we share together with God and each other. That's what took place. 
So Peter says, or Paul says in verse 18, for th- uh, for verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him. You're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, notice, if you've been paying attention as we've been working through 1 Peter, Peter says that we are strangers and aliens. Paul says that we're not. Who's right? Both. Because each has a different context. Peter's saying, if you put us in the world, we're strangers and aliens. Paul says, if you put us in the kingdom together, we're not. This is where we belong. But understand, our belonging, our citizenship in the kingdom, is with other citizens. It's with others. So now Peter comes, and he tells us how we're to relate to each other inside, and even those who might be our enemies. And we must take this seriously. Because, you see, the way that we relate to others is a, an expression of God in us. It's an expression of the image of God. The way that we show people that we are God's is how we relate to Him to others. The question being, are we a happy society? Are we a community that cares and loves for each other in the way that God cares and loves? That's the question. Now, Peter's just developing this. He's, he's spoken some about this at the end of chapter 1. He'll speak about this again. And so we're just kind of catching the middle. So I won't give you everything that we could get uh, on this. Just, I think, what's here in these verses. Because there's two parts to this. One, how we're to relate to each other by way of who we are. Peter doesn't give a list of things to do in the context of each other. But he does tell us the kind of people we're to be. Notice in verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you. He's been talking to bits and pieces of us. He's been talking to those and how we're related to civil authorities. He's been talking to to slaves and masters. Uh, He's been talking to wives and husbands. Now he says, okay, let me get you all back together again since I've pieced you off here. Let, Let me get you all back together. All of you, he says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That's what's to be true of you. That's to be your inner person, if you will, your personality. Together you are to have unity of mind. Um, Some versions simply put, live in harmony with each other. That's a good translation as well. Or another might say, live harmoniously. And when we think about harmony, we think of a song. When we think about songs, we think of different parts, same song though. Different parts, same song. Different parts, same tune. And if everybody's doing well in this harmony, it sounds really, really good. But if somebody's off, it sounds really, really bad. He says, don't be off. Be on. Sing your part. Live harmoniously. Live at peace with one another. And when we think of having unity of mind, it isn't simply having a unity concerning that which we believe, although it's certainly that. 
but certainly holding fast to that which is true, holding fast to that which is essential in the context of the faith. We must be unified on those things. But it's also how we hold those, the kind of attitude we hold those with. For instance, uh, the call to worship I used this morning was in, I'll give you just a second to think if you can remember. Yeah, very good, Larry, Philippians, and chapter 2. I started with verse 5. I'll, I'll begin, though, in verse 1. Philippians in chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Ah, same mind. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, what's that mind? What's that attitude? What's that understanding? Certainly I would say it's a belief system. It's understanding the truth. But it's more than that. It's having an attitude that's right that goes along with that. Verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. That's the mind. You see, when a person believes the truth, what do you believe? When you believe, for instance... That the best you can accomplish on your own in relationship to God is hell. That's fairly humbling. I mean, the best I can do morally without God on my own is to fail so miserably so as to be condemned to eternal punishment. That's the best I can do. And so, once you understand that there's no hope for you, no hope for me, apart from Jesus, the one who came and lived perfectly so that what he earned was his father's approval while I don't earn that. And I realize he took the penalty for my sin that I might trust in him and be forgiven. When I begin to realize that that that's who I am, condemned apart from Christ, but in him and only through him, belonging to the Father, That's humbling. He says, so take this truth that you all agree to and let it filter through your minds and come to its logical conclusion. How can you think you're all that? How can you think that you're better than anyone else? How can you think that anybody else should try to live up to your standards and satisfy you all the time? And so he says, no, don't do anything out of rivalry or conceit. And in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's not about me. I'm not the center of the universe. It all doesn't revolve around me. It all doesn't have to please me. It has to please God. It's about Him. And so it frees us, you see, to stop worrying about ourselves and looking for the interests of others. And he says, then this mind is the same that, that Jesus had. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, Jesus had every right to walk around saying, it's all about me. But he humbled himself, it says. Made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He could have said, I don't deserve this. And he would have been absolutely right. But he thought of the interests of others. He humbled himself. 
Romans chapter 12 and verse 16. Uh, Paul writes this. He says, live in harmony with one another. Same notion. Live in harmony with each other. Have unity of mind in this way that leads to harmonious relationship. Well, how does it lead to that? It leads to that because of the truth about who we are and who God is. It leads us to live in harmony. And then he goes on simply to amplify that by saying, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Well, how can we be conceited? How can there be anybody we can't associate with? How can there be anybody too low for the likes of me? How can there be anybody who needs Jesus less than I do? How can there be anybody who needs their sins forgiven any less than me? There isn't anybody. And so how can we not associate with each other? How can we be conceited? How can there be any division between us, really? Because, you see, our our identity is no longer how much education we have, how much money we have, what the color of our skin is, where we come from, what side of the tracks. It's not anymore on how good I may look in the eyes of others. The gig's up. You know. You know about me. Just read the Bible. I'm one of those people called sinners. Right? And so, you know about me. How can I put myself... How can I not associate with? How can I say, well, that person's too bad for me? I said, how can you be conceited? Chapter 15, verse 1 in Romans. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ, again the example, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's how much he took our interests at heart. He took all the reproaches, all the insults that should have come to us, to him. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's the reason for all this. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with each other. That's Paul's prayer. He says, I hope that God will move in Gracie PC's life to such a way that you live in harmony with each other. Why? So that you can come together. And when you come together, You can worship with one voice. Not a person over here trying to worship God, thinking about how yucky a person over here is. But everybody's sitting in the same place together. And it's as if we're one voice. The literal translation would be one mouth. I think sometimes a logo for us should just be a big mouth, but that probably wouldn't look very good. One big mouth. Glorify God together. Each person could be his own kid. Here we are. Sorry. See, you'll be thinking about that now. Just every time somebody smiles, you see the teacher going, oh no, that's who we are, one big mouth. But that's it, you see. But that's the purpose of it. That's why it's so crucial. If that's not happening, if we're not living harmoniously, then we're not expressing the image of God in us. 
That's to be a happy society. That's to be a community united together in love for him and each other. You see, that's the completion of the work of Christ really in us. And let me just say this. I'm just say this. I really believe that one of the reasons that our church has prospered to the degree that we have is because by the grace of God, this has been, I think, I'm going to couch this because of my paranoia, relatively true of us. That we've held passionately and uncompromisingly to the essentials of the faith. That the motto of our denomination in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity, has been worked out in us. But more than that, I think we've been able to realize that God has done a great thing in us individually and in the context of our church. And so we hold it very tenderly. And we don't want to get off. And we don't want to start nitpicking. And one of the greatest things is that I've rarely heard anybody in our church ever say, if you do that, I'll leave. Because we have this sense of understanding that we're in this together. And I think one of the great things we can pass along to our children, I pray, I just pray we can make it a generation. <laughs> Churches just don't have a good track record. But I pray we can make it a generation where our kids can actually grow up and say, you know, I don't remember any really nasty splits or nasty stuff go on in my church. When I go there, it's peaceful. It's, it's, like, it's like home. And I hope college students who go through our church can say, you know, I was in that church and that seemed to be a church where people actually held to the truth in a way that was passionate and yet still they didn't nitpick at each other all the time. Somebody was asking me the other day, you know, we're out of space again as always. We have to probably build more stuff, maybe a sanctuary, more Sunday school classes, all that sort of thing. And he says, is that going to be hard? And I said, well, you know, my wife tells me building buildings is like giving birth. You got to forget the last one before you're willing to do another one. Uh, but uh, I don't know what I don't know if that's true or not. That's just what she tells me. But I know about building buildings, and uh, and I say you know, but we've had a good run with building buildings because agree disagree. We have a reasonable group of people because we understand what's at stake here. Buildings aren't at stake here. What's at stake here is the image of God. What's at stake here is the glory of God. What's at stake here is our children being able to grow up and see that that believers can be a happy society, even in the midst of difficult, perhaps, and expensive decisions. Someone asked me what my vision for the church is, and I say, well, just that I don't mess this up. I know that won't make any books. You know, That won't be the chapter of a book on visions for churches. But but I, I... God has been so gracious to us. I simply don't want to mess this up. But to live in this unity of mind, to live in this harmonious life. And that doesn't mean we can't disagree, and that doesn't mean we can't discuss things, but in the context of our doing of that, we must remember that it's not about us, it's not about me, it doesn't revolve around us, it doesn't revolve about me. I'm not all that, neither are you. It's about God. I need to keep that. Quickly, we're to be sympathetic towards one another. Once we stop thinking about ourselves, then boom, you'll be, it's amazing what you see in other people, what their needs are, 
Once you start having life revolve around you and open your eyes and embrace somebody else, it's amazing to be sympathetic. Brotherly love, we've discussed that at the end of chapter one. But we're to be a family. And family love can be very difficult because, you know, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. And God brings all kinds of people into our midst, very different than we. But yet, we're to love, even in the midst of all these differences. We're to be tender-hearted. That is, there's to be a sense of generosity towards another we're to see needs, and it's to do something to us. We're not to be a cold people that can walk past one another without thinking. And this can be as, as, as easy, if you will, as smile on a Sunday morning to somebody we don't know, to a hello, to a how are you really, you see. To be tender-hearted, to be people when needs are expressed, that people respond to those needs. There's nothing more cool to me, to the pastor, than to find out a week after a problem that somebody had and hear how it was taken care of just by people. You know, I'll get the news, oh, somebody was in the hospital and got out, da-da-da-da, and I'll go, oh, I didn't know about that. Don't worry. They got meals, people visited, da-da-da, da-da-da. I said, Phew. why? Tender-hearted. Somebody heard, somebody acted, somebody responded. Doesn't have to go through these formal channels of we'll make this call, we got this committee, we got just people responding, tender hearted, humble mind. And then he says this if you're that kind of person on the inside, and if you're that kind of person in the context of the church, here's how you relate to people outside. He says one of the most astounding things do not repay evil for evil or for or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Peter's writing to a group of people who get this way more than you and I probably do. He's writing to a group of people who are experiencing various trials, he says in chapter 1, and he's talking about persecution that not only is happening, but is to come. Remember, he's writing, Peter is, the beginning of Nero's reign, actually Nero's craziness. And Nero's just about, in the next year or so after this is written, to wreak havoc on these believers. And he's saying, okay, when it's happening, and when that happens, don't curse them, bless them. To bless means to have the attitude of heart that desires the good for someone else, so much so that you're willing to speak it and say it. Now, that doesn't mean you affirm their evil, but it means you're able to say, I really do wish for your good. I think of Stephen. In Acts in chapter 7, when he's preaching, and after he preaches, they begin to stone him to death, stone him to, that leads to his death. And as he's dying, he cries out to Jesus, whom he sees standing in heaven, waiting to receive him. And he says, don't hold this against them. He says, don't revile back. Don't be harsh. Don't be vindictive. And of course, why is that? Well, because on the one hand, we know who we are. We know the grace and the mercy that's been shown to us by the Lord Jesus. We know that we would deserve whatever anybody else would deserve in terms of justice from God. And he has said, no, I'll meet it out in Jesus. And what we're saying when we're blessing others is, I hope you have this blessing too. I hope you're able to repent and experience 
the fact that Jesus will take your penalty. I hope you, I hope you get that. Because that's what I've got. To bless them. And then he says, that you may obtain a blessing. He's saying this kind of life leads to blessing from God. It isn't without its rewards. He says, if you bless when you're cursed, you receive a blessing from God. Now, Peter doesn't go on to define what that blessing is. Most certainly, it's this eternal inheritance. Because if we can bless when we're cursed, it shows that we really do have faith. And thus he's saying, you'll get this eternal inheritance, this great inheritance that's kept in heaven for you by faith. But it seems that there's a present blessing as well because he goes on to quote Psalm 34. And Psalm 34, read it this week sometime in your leisure. But Psalm 34 is a, is a great psalm for the one who is oppressed. And it's a great psalm about this one who's oppressed and God will come and rescue and help. And so Peter says, whoever desires to, to love life and see good days. Now, he's talking to a group of people who by every other right should be depressed. To be discouraged. There's not enough life to love because of their circumstances. But he doesn't say their circumstances would change. He says, if you want in the midst of your life to love life, and he said, and see good days, have a good day in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the persecution. You want to have a good day and love life that day? Here's how you do it. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Careful what you say. Don't threaten. Don't revile back. But bless. If you bless, you'll get a blessing from God. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? Verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Wednesday evening I was talking about prayer and I used the illustration of Hagar. You remember she was uh, Sarah's maidservant. Sarah, Abraham's wife. Do you remember that Abraham and Sarah were old? Sarah could not conceive a child. And so she gave Hagar to Abraham. And Hagar conceived. And after she conceived, of course, duh, there was a problem between Hagar and Sarah. Of jealousy. So Sarah expelled Hagar from the home and she went out and she went out into the wilderness all alone. She was desperate. She had nothing and no one. But God showed up. Because here she was in her distress and in this great humility in an obedience and submission to Sarah she just left. And God sees her. So much so that in her discussions with God she gets the name of God that is the Lord who sees. And Peter says, listen, follow me, trust me. Just, just bless with your mouth. Don't try to be God and deal with this situation by what you can say and all the threats you can make. If you really replay our threats, they're pretty silly. <laughs> we just don't have the power to follow through on threats like God can. So he says, trust me, leave that with me. Vengeance is mine. If it needs to be done, it will be. You bless them. You pray that they repent and come to know Jesus. That's your job. You bless them. And I'll 
I see you. And I know your situation. And my eyes will be upon you. You won't have to worry. And then he says, and his ears are open to their prayer. In chapter 5, Peter will quote Proverbs and say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The one who's humble, who trusts in God, who knows he or she can't, but God can. And the one, therefore, who trusts what God says in his wisdom, even though it's counterintuitive. He says, trust me, and I will hear your prayers. That's the blessing. That's the blessing, you see, of this life that trusts, this life that follows, this life that it lives in harmony, this life that's sympathetic, this life that's tender-hearted, <clears throat> this life that's humble-minded, this life that blesses and doesn't curse, that's a life that trusts. And a life that trusts can live in the perfect confidence that God sees and that God hears. I pray we not miss that blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be with us. Cause us to walk in your ways. Make the gospel so real to us that we really know the truth of it, that we really embrace and comprehend the truth of it, that we're really captivated by it to the degree that we're humbled by it. Even in the midst of all our degrees and all our money and all our clothes and all our houses and all our cars and all our stuff, we simply know we're sinners saved by grace. And there isn't any other human being we really can't embrace for you have embraced us. Enable us to bless and to live in the certain hope that you see and hear this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you of our Sunday school classes. If you're new to us, please meet out at the kiosk uh, hang out with the FYI people. It will be a blessing to them and to you, I think, uh, to you, I think, as well. The response to the benediction is, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. Now, to bless the Lord, you know what that means. To bless the Lord means to speak good things about the Lord. And so when you say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, you're saying, My soul is so happy in God that it just, even when my mouth isn't moving, it's blessing the Lord. It's happy. It's pleased with what God has done. And when you say hallelujah, it just means praise be to God. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, bless the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. <clears throat>